Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 65 of Yoga Land. On today's episode, I talk to the delightful Lizzie Lassiter. Lizzie lives in Salzburg with her Austrian husband, and she teaches restorative yoga around the world and also through digital trainings with her mother, Judith Lassiter. I interviewed Judith on last week's episode, and I, I had tried to coordinate all of us together, but it didn't work. And I'm so glad that it didn't actually, because it was wonderful to talk to both of them separately. So I talked to Judith a little bit about being a yoga mom, raising three kids while being a yoga teacher. And I got to talk to Lizzie today about the flip side of that, because I'm obviously very interested in how Judith did such a fantastic job of passing yoga along to Lizzie. And unsurprisingly, Lizzie was incredibly well-spoken and insightful, and we had a great conversation, not just about being a yoga daughter, but also about coming into her own and finding her own voice. So enjoy the interview. You just were mentioning that, you know, your mom just turned 70 and she's still got so much work. Yeah. How did you guys decide to come together to work together? And you mostly, do you mostly work together digitally or do you also do live stuff with her? Both, but it started from me. I was teaching yoga in my very early twenties in, I went to UCLA and I studied with Matias Rati. She sent me, mom sent me too. Oh, nice. Yeah. I said, I wanted, you know, I'm in LA. I want to do yoga. Who should I go to? And she said, Oh, go to my friend Mati. And then <laughs> I showed up in her Ashtanga room, <laughs> terrified, but that was really my yoga adolescence. It was so good because I, I, and I did my first 200 hour training with Mati and Chuck and I kind of returned to studying with mom from a different perspective. So yoga had been part of my childhood and I, but then that was when I really became a serious student. Mm -hmm. And I started teaching right away. I hired to teach my first yoga class from email. <laughs> I emailed them and they, and they wrote me back. I love your mom. You're hired. And I was like, <laughs> okay. So I started teaching and that really, you know, I was really, I felt in her shadow, of course, in a big way. And I was very self-conscious that I would never really be as good as her. That was the voice I heard in my head, the judgy voice I had in my head when I was, you know, 22, 23. And I also felt, if I'm really honest, that there was this energy at that time in LA. It's probably still there. I'm no longer in LA. It was so much about the physical body. And I was afraid of making a career about my body because I just thought it's going to make me crazy. And I'm going to have trouble enjoying food, frankly, for the rest of my life. You know, I'm going to have this really messy relationship. So I thought, okay, this does, I'm not sure, you know, those factors. And then I, at the same time, I fell in love with design and architecture and decided to do a master's degree in architecture. Wow. And yeah, so I stopped teaching yoga, kept practicing and moved to New York and had my architect phase loved studying architecture, loved design, all of that. Met my husband there. Then we moved to Austria where he's from. So it was this whole kind of era for me. And then I started working as an architect and I hated it. Mm, interesting. So different <laughs> applying it to work than... Now the study of architecture is genius. The study of architecture is just talking about ideas and talking to 
smart professors about your projects and drawing and staying up all night in studio discussing the meaning of modernism. And then I got into the workplace and it was just all building is, of course, all about money. It was just about budgets and costs and just, you know, hideous ceiling tile A or hideous ceiling tile B. And like, I just thought, ah. And then you run back to the office and draw on the computer for hours, like and hours and hours and hours. And hours. So I thought, okay, I've got to do something. And I had moved to Europe and I thought, I'm drowning. I'm really drowning. And so I was always practicing. And then I was so lonely actually here in Europe alone, you know, in German and a new language. And I started going to yoga. Hmm. I started going to the studio just to be around yoga people. And they said, oh, do you, you know, come teach, come teach, come teach. And I started teaching restorative. That was about three, three and a half years ago. And then my teaching just sort of blossomed and it gave me a bridge out of the architecture office life Mm -hmm. into teaching again. And then I pitched mom the idea. It's actually my brother's idea. I have to give him credit. I pitched mom the idea you know, why don't I use my design skills and produce a digital course with you and you'll be the talent and I'll produce it and, you know, I'll put it online. And she was a little reluctant. She didn't get it at first. And I will never forget. We went, our first course was just audio. We went into the audio studio and I did our first day of recording and we come out and she turns to me and goes, this is going to be great. Oh, good. Oh, good. (laughs) Your mom is so enthusiastic. It's great. She's so funny. So then, so yeah, so we've done, I think four or five digital courses now and that we have at our, our platform, Lassiter.yoga. And then we did a course with Yoga Journal and then we started teaching a little bit together and she's been so generous with me. I think it's a nice sort of gimmick to have mother and daughter in room, in the room at the same time. People find the dynamic interesting somehow to yeah. see us together. It was scary for me at first because she's my teacher now. And so I'm teaching in front of my teacher. And your mom. Yeah. No. And she's also so funny because she's like, we did a thing at the yoga journal conference, uh, a women's day. And then we thought, oh, it'd be funny if uh, she teaches the active morning and I teach the afternoon restorative. Cause that's sort of the opposite of what you would think like young and old. So she did it with me. And then in the afternoon, she didn't want to co-teach. She said, I will assist you. Aww. Why don't you teach? She loves you so, so much. She just like cherishes you guys. It's really awesome. It's really awesome. I have to tell you if, if Sophia ever, if our daughter ever wanted to teach yoga Jason would be like doing back handsprings. I mean, your mom is just probably so stoked that all this work that she has devoted her life to, you know, both her work life and her personal life with her personal practice, that you are interested in it at all. And then that you can teach it and that you want to teach it. I'm sure she is thrilled, like beyond thrilled, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, for me, I was particularly drawn. It's funny because I started with Ashtanga, but I was so drawn now in the past, 
I would say five years to restorative, which of course she's teaching and writing about. And it was so powerful for me when I went through that really hard time moving to Europe and feeling so lonely. And I, my, I had had anxiety in high school, really bad panic attacks. And it it started coming back. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 How has restorative been helpful for you with, with panic attacks? So my working theory is that restorative yoga allows us to access, to to integrate in a way that bypasses the language center of the brain. So we're not talking about what's going on for us, which in its own right, I think is valuable on the couch at the psychiatrist, but it's a different form of giving ourselves empathy. And so when we are able to be quiet with ourselves without talking about what's going on and just deeply settling and relaxing into it and letting go of so much that we're holding in the body, I think it gives us a lot of the benefits we have from talk therapy, for example, but we release things that are nonverbal. No, I, I love that. I've never, I've never quite thought of it with those words that it's a way of offering empathy to yourself, but it's true. I, I can remember years ago taking class from Sarah Powers and I can't remember. Oh, I think we were doing yin and she was saying, you know, can you regard yourself right now the way you would lovingly regard a new baby? You know, like you would never <laughs> like be angry <laughs> at a baby for having a hard time or, you know, you would, my yeah. husband just, just jokingly pointed to himself and said, I would, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, that thought of just regarding yourself with empathy, regarding yourself with like that really, really simple love can, can be so helpful and so healing. How do you incorporate restorative into your life? That's, it's actually something I still struggle with is like giving myself a break, you know, giving myself t- that time. Something I do, it's counterintuitive because, yeah, this is, of course, the question. Mom always says the restorative yoga is magic. The magic is if you don't do it, it doesn't work. <laughs> like, And she's so strict. I am, too. I mean, for me, a restorative pose is 20 minutes of silence. Mm. So what I like to do is actually find moments in my day when there is a bit of a squeeze. And of course, I'm really lucky because I, when I'm home and not traveling, I'm, I work from my yoga room slash living room. So the computer and the bolster are not so far away from each other. But what I love to do, for example, just before we were talking, I had a kind of 24 minute gap in my schedule. I had just done a webinar and then I knew I was coming up with you. So I like to use that moment as a kind of positive pressure to say, okay, come on quickly. If you jump, I mean, it's the wrong word, but if, you know, take advantage of it right now, instead of just fretting away these 24 minutes, checking email for the thousandth time today, can you set yourself up, lie down, set the timer and go? Mm, Yeah. I like to find those pinch points in my day. I use also a lot when my husband is coming home from his office and he texts me and then I know I've got, you know, 23 minutes. That's and great. so I will jump onto the mat, get myself in Supta Konasana, and then use him as the timer. He walks in the door for dinner. Yeah. Yeah. That's really smart. I think instead of thinking of it as this open space of like, 
how will I fit this whole thing in? When you think of it as a really finite little chunk of time, it, yeah, that mentally does work a lot better. I like that. I like that. It's anyway just your mind tricking you. Your mind is just saying you don't have enough time. I mean, that's just a great, so nice excuse. It's so true. It's the same mind, by the way, that says you already ate one cookie. You might as well eat 10. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I know that one pretty well. <laughs> that's why I don't have cookies in my house, actually. <laughs> I know my, my mind well enough. Although my like go-to would be like salty snacks. That's really my downfall. If I have hmm. any salty snacks in my house, it's like over. It's just not, not cool. Hmm. Not, not a good situation. So I want to go back for a moment to, to growing up with your mom. You know, I'm mom, obviously Jason and I are, are similar parents in terms of our interests, at least to what you, you know, the way that your parents were. Do you have like early memories of your mom doing yoga around you guys? Was it just kind of in your presence modeled or did she kind of do it when you weren't around? No, definitely. It was a big part of our it was such a big part of our childhood that it doesn't even seem like she never, it's, you can't disambiguate it. Mm -hmm. Yoga was just the same as brushing your teeth Mm -hmm. or cooking, or it was just something she did every day, but with zero ceremony and zero kind of energy almost. It was just what she did in the morning. And I think that's, that's what I was. People like to ask me this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, yogis like to ask me, you know, exactly <laughs> you people raising kids who are doing, you know, it's like, what, 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 what how do I do it? And, you know, how, how do I get them interested? You know, I mean, from what I learned from her, what I will do if we are a kid is just, just practice, just yeah. do it. It was open. She, you know, when we were growing up and the house was full. She did her practice in the bedroom you know, now she has a yoga room that was actually my old bedroom. It's not her fancy yoga room, but she, it was just in the morning, you know, 30 minutes, 40, 40 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever she had before she was driving the carpool or the normal kind of housewife Mm -hmm. mom stuff. And she just really let it be there. And she was so open. I think she also did it really well. It was always available if we wanted to join or ask questions or do things with her, but she never pushed it and Mm -hmm. never proselytized. There was no energy coming from her side. She says, I love this. Uh, She says, the people in your life who don't do yoga, you know, your partners or your kids, they feel, they know that you look at them and you see a lack of yoga. Hmm. So it's about what I take from that is that it's about, I have it with my partner, you know, he's so supportive of yoga and he has practiced before and he, you know, he, he, he gets it. He likes to go to India with me. I mean, he's 90%, but he doesn't do any asana and I want him to. (laughs) So that's part of my, you know, part of my practice is really trying to take responsibility to look at him and not see a lack of yoga. Hmm. So you felt like she was good at that. She was, she was able to separate that. Really good at that. Really good at that. And just, you know, whole, really, frankly, holding her tongue, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, some kind of, um, sports injury from soccer or some kind of, you know, shoulder pain or some kind of kid thing. 
instead of any kind of passive aggressive, well, if you come do yoga with me, I'll show you, I can tell you how to, so you don't, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the, that the whole conversation, it just, yeah. yeah, the cajoling, the guilt just wasn't there. It just was like, you know, if you want it. And then the other thing, which I know she did consciously because I've heard her talk about it. And now when I think back, especially with asana, she was so open to it. If we ever showed interest, you know, 12 or 15 years old or something, Hey mom, she always tells the story. Like my brother Cam would be home from college and say, mom, I definitely want to practice with you really early tomorrow morning. And then it would be, he would mean, she's like, okay, what time? And it would mean like 11. Yeah. (laughs) Dude. Like that, right? So, but if we ever showed, you know, when we showed interest, she would just say, okay, yeah, let's meet on the mat tomorrow X time. And then she would really let us say, okay, let's do Bhattakonasana or Bhattakasana or headstand and just start with whatever, like no rules. And I think also, for example, another great thing, I mean, there's not every teacher can offer this to their kids because if you're teaching you know, studio classes, but she did retreats in the summers when we were kids. And I think that was brilliant as well to take us to wonderful places surrounded by people doing yoga. Mm -hmm. And then the door was always open. Mm -hmm. If you want to come to class, sure. Come to one class or, you know, at the whole week or not, or in the afternoons or not. I mean, it's so ironic now because I would, then I slowly maybe sort of age 14 started going to classes. I would go to the asana class at retreats in the summer, but then I would never go to the afternoon because I would say, Oh my God, it's so boring. Just yeah. Kaniyama and restore it. <laughs> That's a lot to ask a teenager, you know? I mean, that is like kind of beyond. I was, I would probably like 99% of teenagers would opt out of that. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. You know, Sophia's still pretty young. She's only five. So it's similar. Like we, we just do it at home and it's, you know, we don't make it into a big deal. I see on people's Instagram feeds, their kids doing these amazing things with them. And we we haven't seen that spark in her. Like the only thing that she's really interested in doing right now is handstands, which is adorable. Cool. So, you know, Jason will put yeah. her up in handstand and then she'll kind of half jump up. And anytime I'm doing yoga, that's what she does. She's like, I'm going to do yoga with you, mom, right next to you. And she's like handstanding on me. It's crazy. <laughs> but but we, we have brought her to the studio a few times, like if he's doing a training for her mm-hmm. to just kind of see the student and see the atmosphere and see him teaching and in that role and for her to get a sense of because he does travel like your mom did probably to get a sense of like what he's doing when he leaves and he's on the road and I feel like that is a, a good transmission like to see to be in that group environment she's taking something in there you know there definitely is something Oh, a hundred percent. I think that's, I think that's huge. I, even when I was really little, I think, yeah, five years old, I remember in the, even in the afternoon classes at retreats, for example, in the summer at the Featherpipe Ranch, I would specifically come in during Shavasana and sit in her lap and she would let me ring the bells. Oh Yeah. That's so nice. And that for me was a big deal. And she said to me, okay, you have to become a bell in order to ring the bell. Hmm. And it was three minutes of silence for me as she would have her assistant come to the window and wave. I'd be out on the lawn and then I'd go in and I'd wave, uh, ring the bells. And I think that, because you know what that for me, it is, I always say to Nico, 
will eat something and I'll say, this tastes like my childhood, some soup or some. And I think that that's really deep in us as kids, what we're, what we're absorbing. And so I wonder the degree to which just that kind of silent, sacred energy of an asana class is somehow deep in me. And I feel at home there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder that too. I mean, that that's pretty fabulous to think that that's just Hmm. embedded in you, you know? I went to a studio recently and it was an Iyengar studio that didn't have a shop or anything. It was just, and I, I walked in, I was taking a friend's class and it was just a little room where you take off your shoes and then there's no, there was no cash register even. You just went in and then you went into the room and took the class and afterward you just came and brought her your 15 euro and it was so simple. And I, my first reaction when I walked in there, there was something about the smell And I said, this studio smells like my childhood, Hmm. like (laughs) the old school studios before they started selling candles, you know, like that were just like that. Yeah. They just kind of smelled a little bit like bodies (laughs) and some incense maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And like the props or something. I don't know. I couldn't identify what it was, but so I think the degree to which it's, it's those, it's those smaller things. And then, as I said, you know, in my story, I, I do think if I were consciously constructing to try to get my kids to do yoga later, I also think what was important is mom giving me the space to have a yoga adolescence, to go away, to study with someone else. She And she was not resentful. In fact, she was super sneaky about it. When I was in college, she and started saying, you know, I'd like to go to yoga. She said, okay, sure. You know, buy the monthly yoga works pass, put it on my credit card. Oh, you know, like it was like, yeah, she funded your yoga. It was like, you know, beer, you're on your own, but yoga's on me. That's <laughs> like, awesome. It's yeah. It's smart, right? And and so that, I think the adolescence was really important. Oh, this is what I want to say. Also, sh- I know she did this on purpose as well. When I was very little, I got into gymnastics and she was pleased and supported. I think back then they also didn't have kids yoga, but she wanted me to have some way of being in my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, you know, so it was more than just playing soccer, but something that was really about proprioception and balance and it could be dance or something, but, but, but consciously looking for ways that, because now I notice I do have, a, 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 I always had, I think because of gymnastics, a certain, not, a, not just flexibility, but a certain relationship with moving my body in space and a certain sense of comfort, you know, like handstand and all that was just much more familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I mean, I love the advice about like letting your kid have their own yoga adolescence. That's brilliant. And I don't know if we would have thought of that. And also, you know, what you're saying about, you know, doing gymnastics or dance versus a competitive sport. I've never really quite thought of it that way, but you know, I was a dancer growing up and I have this similar desire for Sophia, what you're describing of having some, and I think it's like, wanting them to develop some kind of internal relationship with their body, like not just an external competitive sports relationship, which I think is great. I mean, I think team sports are so great for some kids for so many reasons, but having that dance and gymnastics, there's a lot of work that's done alone. Like there's a lot of individual work on your body and like Mm -hmm. an individual relationship. That's a little bit different. I think that's interesting. Yeah. And I think never more so now in our selfie culture and social media culture, the ability to cultivate a sense of self that's from the inside out 
as opposed to from the outside in is so valuable for all of us. Yeah. Big time. I mean, we, we, we don't even know. It's interesting. I mean, my daughter's obviously too young to have a phone yet. Thank God. <laughs> Cause we don't even know really what effect this is going to have. I guess it's just maybe one way I need, I need to frame it is just these practices will be more important than ever. And we just need to keep them going mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. And I, what I like to focus on, of course, the phone is a quantum leap and we're accelerating into this. I just wrote something, a description of this webinar we did for Yoga Journal as we accelerate into a world full of algorithms and artificial intelligence. I mean, we have no idea. There's no control group. We don't know what's ha- what we're doing, how we're literally rewiring our brains. Yeah. Because the, this webinar was about Patanjali and, and philosophy. So the question was basically, is it still relevant? And mom's answer not surprisingly was, you know, it's more relevant than ever. And to think the degree to which it's not the phone, it's, it's like just another way of distracting ourselves. We call it the phone, right. you know, and it's, it's more compelling maybe than our, the last thing we used to distract ourselves, which was a newspaper, but a physical newspaper. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's the mind, it's the nature of the mind. And that hasn't changed mm. in the thousands of years since Patanjali wrote the Yoga Sutra. You know, like it's, we're dealing with the same stories. <laughs> right. No, that's absolutely true. That's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. And if it's not the phone, exactly. It, it was something else or it will be something else, but the work is the same. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And I have to, I have to say not just my mom, but my dad also, he has an asana practice. He, he practiced asana when we were kids. And what I also saw with him, which was really valuable is that what he demonstrated, not by talking about, but just by doing, he got really into Zen meditation. Mm-hmm. And so I saw he converted this walk-in closet into his meditation room and dad would go up and close the door and sit for 45 minutes. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was shown just by example it was just, and I saw not only just saw him practicing, but what I also saw, which I hope I'm allowed to have, if I have a kid, I saw my parents, dad, I would say even more than mom, be in a process of spiritual evolution Mm. or spiritual is a a loaded word, but like self, you know, like in the process of unfolding self inquiry, I would say is maybe is a more neutral word, but in the process of self inquiry and, and actually making changes and looking and reading and studying and being, they were both there. They both are on this path in this lifetime of looking at themselves and they've both become teachers. My dad teaches nonviolent communication. Now the degree to which, you know, looking inside and then sharing action, reflection, action, reflection. And Mm. so I saw that with my dad a lot. And I think that was a great model to me that I saw, Oh, this is a man in his fifties and he's gotten really into this type of meditation. He's buying all the books and he's going to workshops and he's doing the practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a nice model for, for kids. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. It's, I mean, it's like, you know, Jason does a lot of teaching teachers and talking to people about how, when you start teaching, it can be, it can be hard to maintain your own practice. You know, if you're, if it's a grind and you're hustling and all these things and you're, it it changes your relationship to your practice, but it's like the most essential thing. If you're going to try to model it in any way is to keep it up. That's nice. I love that your dad had his own little meditation pod. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and I used to sneak in there when he wasn't in there and I would burn the incense and <laughs> I would look at these, these meditation books and that yeah, it's really amazing. 
I think, you know, we also, we define, that's why I loved about, you guys did a podcast recently and I emailed you that I loved it so much about home practice. And I think that's a fundamental mistake we all make is like, we, we define home practice in this really rigid way. It has to be 90 minutes and it has to look like the Ashtanga first series every single day. Yep. When I was in grad school, for example, I was in the super intense architecture program in New York city and I made a commitment to myself. Okay. Six mornings a week, I'm going to get up. And this was literally the deal I made with myself for three years long, three long years, six days a week. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do at least 15 minutes of asana practice before breakfast. That's it. And if I do that, if, if it's done after 15, I'm allowed to get off and I'm allowed to go on my day and I've got, I get to mark up a win for the day. Mm-hmm. And if I want to do longer and, you know, of course it would have sure, but it was like 15 minutes was this number that seemed so simple and so little. And the rule was I'm not allowed to eat breakfast until I do it. <laughs> so it didn't have to be at a specific time, you know, sometimes it would be noon on Saturday and I would do my food. But just redefining the rules for myself, that was so helpful because I knew I was going to be stressed and I knew I wasn't going to have a lot of time, but I wanted to practice. And so that just make 15 sounds so doable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, I, like setting it up, like rigging the game in my favor. I think that's, that is such an important thing to remember. How can you, how can you win already before you start in your home practice? Yeah, totally. That's a good way to think about it. It wasn't until I, until Jason and I moved in together that, cause we actually used to practice together before we lived together and we would kind of do long practices because it was, we just kind of had the time at that time. And then <laughs> when we moved in together, I saw him putting this into practice, this idea of like, just make it a natural part of your life. Just fit it in where you can. Sometimes he would do practice first thing in the morning with a cup of coffee. Sometimes he would do it late in the day while he was watching baseball. That was actually my favorite. It was like seeing him watching baseball and doing yoga Mm -hmm. was so great. It was Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is, you can actually enjoy this. You know, that's not how he (laughs) always does practice, but just to make it like a fun part of your, of your day too. It was so liberating for me. I coming from a dance background. Yeah. I was just like, I must torture myself to win. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, yeah. Um, I mean, I've, so many of us have spent years inflicting yoga on ourselves. Yeah. Something I'm discovering recently with mom, as she ages, as we both age, as we all age, I'm seeing, because a lot of people ask me about Oh, growing up with a mom as a yoga teacher. And that's, that had its own magic. But I think the unfolding hidden magic is really wonderful to see her aging with yoga now that she's turned 70 this year. And I see it as a kind of preview for myself. And the gift is to see what falls away in an honest way. Cause when I go home, I go to her yoga room in the morning and we practice together and I really see what she's doing. And mm-hmm. so many students I think don't have that access of course. And they imagine that all of these 60, 70 year old yoga asana teachers are still doing crazy things. And she sometimes does crazy things. I mean, she'll, she'll do elbow stand and she'll put her legs in Lotus and, but it's less and less important. Yeah. And I've seen her go through so many phases with grief and family issues and my parents divorced and health, you know, all the stuff that happens to all of us as we Mm -hmm. age, her mom dying, 
And I see the degree to which, and we talk about it, her asana practice becomes less and less important and her pranayama and her meditation and her restorative practice becomes more and more important. Mm -hmm. And what it's doing for me in my thirties now is in the sense of a preview, I'm seeing that and I'm thinking, hmm, why don't I start emphasizing those things now? and get a kind of jump start because I'm saying, okay, if any way this is going to fall away, if any way, when I'm 70, I'm not going to be doing the crazy gymnastics side of asana may, you know, it's a thought experiment. Okay. What if I already start now putting a slightly less in sort of importance on that area? Yeah. And I do it when it feels good. And when it's the right part of my monthly cycle and I feel, you know, aggressive and I want to, I want to do things, but then giving myself more and more permission to take seriously the pranayama, the meditation, the restorative part, and thinking of it as a sense of, um, like a savings account. I think of it as investing in the longevity of my practice. Mm, Yeah. That's super wise girl. Can tell you were raised by a yoga teacher. <laughs> I don't think too many people have that revelation in their 30s. You know, I think it's it starts when, like you're saying, like it starts when things start to fall away a little bit, or you know, hormones change, or um, that's when we kind of wake up to like, oh yeah, I need to be proactive about making those deposits in our like overall wellness. I think also when you are in that place, those practices are so much more effective. Like for some of us, we have to burn off that physical desire for a longer period of time, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it's like, it's not until you're really ready to sit more, to breathe more. I was actually, I I did an interview with Richard Rosen and I admitted like, pranayama at home by myself is the hardest practice for me to do still (laughs) so hard I would so much prefer to sit for like an hour than to I don't know Mm -hmm. why I I mean I, I I do have some theories which I won't bore people with but but it is and he was kind of like you know you live in California you think I bet you think about what you eat the water you drink the air you breathe the chemicals that you know you store your food, you know, the containers that you store your food in, mm-hmm. your yoga practice, your clothing, all, the, all these things. Why, why are you not thinking about your breathing? <laughs> I was kind of like, <laughs> okay. ouch. I know, I know, I know. It's such a good point. It's such a good point. I just spent a week with Rod Stryker and Elena Brower, which was brilliant. And Rod said to me something that's really stuck with me. I've been telling everyone since the workshop that he said, it's not about how much asana you can do. It's about how much you need to do to get to meditation. Ah, that's nice. That's Isn't really... that a nice flip around? Yes. Huge. That's huge. He is so, I <laughs> yeah. mean, he's so brilliant. That must have been a fun... He said that to me like day two after class. I just went and said, thank you. And then he said that to me and I was like, all right, I'm going to go home. <laughs> <laughs> like, We're done here. We're done. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, that is so great. It's true. I mean, of course it varies from day to day still, but it does take me less time to get to that still place than it used to for sure. And I, I guess I hadn't really thought of it that way. Questions in your mind
So we were talking earlier about teaching with your mom and like, you know, some of the natural anxiety that you used to feel with that. And I have this even with my husband, because I'm not a teacher, but he's so much more of a public presence than I've ever been that I think it's taken me some time to find my voice publicly. Like I've always, my voice has always been in writing. So do you feel like you've kind of found your voice, your teach, your own teaching voice, or do you, are you still working on that? That's a really good question. I do think I'm finding it's unfolding. I'm finding, I am conscious of the degree to which, I mean, she's my, addition to being my mom, she's also my teacher. Mm -hmm. She's my main teacher. So, you know, I think about her, she studied with BKS Iyengar, and then there was a, a, a definite process for her of finding her own voice, Absolutely. not just being a little BKS, you know? And yep. so I, I see that happening with me. I have for example, it's, it's really about trusting it. I think the voice is there. Mm -hmm. It's about trusting it. And I have, for example, my other big influence in my studentship right now is the teacher Osho, the oh. meditation teacher. And we, I go to Pune every year and I go to that ashram and I like to meditate there. And, and I read the books and I have a, a mentor who has been an Osho sannyasin for 30 years. And I have great talks with him and he gives me the book. He's kind of leading me in what to read. And I have found a lot there for me in philosophically in the sense that what I get, what I hear from Osho is yes. Hmm. You know, it's a tantric approach. It's like everything can be the practice. And so I, and mom is so, I mean, I'll accept that. Mom is so sort of welcoming and open to me bringing in my own experiences. And with, I mean, it's so funny. The second time I went to the ashram 10 years ago, I took sannyas and took a name, like a, which basically for me meant I'm on a path of meditation mm -hmm. for my life. The process of taking sannyas is very simple and every ashram does it differently and you know how, what it is, but there it's very simple and you get to pick your own name. And the idea, the concept of taking a new spiritual name is to say the, the person before is very Christian, actually, you know, like the person before is, is dead. And this, this new being comes into the world in this moment on the path of meditation, who doesn't have any baggage, hmm. no story, mm -hmm. no conditioning, you know, about what came before. And I'm born again now in this moment. And I'm, I'm now looking in towards in the direction of meditation. So I wrote my mom an email from saying, you know, I decided to take this new name and that I'm going to use when I am here at the ashram and blah, blah, blah. And the name is Moksha is my name and blah, blah, blah. And then she wrote back. <laughs> so wonderful. Love you. Great. Blah, 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 blah. Love mom of moksha oh <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like no moksha doesn't have a mom that's a <laughs> hello oh my gosh that's hysterical was like just so like just so loving you know and like she still will sometimes sign emails mom of moke and i'm like okay not sure you're getting the concept <laughs> she's not she can't quite she can handle it with you you having no past but no mama she can't quite handle that no. part no Oh Not my possible. gosh, that is so funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's adorable. You guys are so adorable. I love that you're teaching together. What are your plans? 
I would imagine, you know, you said your mom's 70, she's still really busy. I am, I would imagine that the online world that what you've helped her do has really helped get her, you know, continue to, I mean, not that she, she's huge. She's been huge for a long time, but just keep reaching people. Have you noticed? I think so. I mean, one of the favorite things that we do is we have a monthly phone call. It's called Office Hours, and it's open to yoga teachers from around the world or or serious students. And we have this wonderful group of people, and they call in once a month. We set a topic. Because what I realized, actually, is that I had this unique access to her, and I was calling her and asking her my yoga student questions, yoga teacher questions. Mm -hmm. For example, I was thinking when you were talking about pranayama, a question I just asked her recently on a private call was, I'm finding now when I lie down to do Shavasana and I start with some Samavritti breathing, I'm finding a spontaneous holding of the breath. Hmm. I breathe out and then I'm not trying. I just am not interested in breathing in for a few counts. Yeah. It's a spontaneous Kumbhaka. And then it starts coming back, you know, then the breath comes. And, and I was asking her about that and what does it mean in her experience? So I have been having these conversations for a decade with her and I realized that it would be so great to put them, you know, to make them open as much as it's possible to others. So we have this monthly call called office hours and we pick a topic each like the upcoming one we pick, we're going to talk about mistakes when mm. in teaching She's going to talk about, she's been teaching since 1971, all the things that have gone wrong. And there are many, she says, and what she learned from them and how to deal with from the practical to the sort of esoteric. And she's very, what these conversations are, which I love also like podcasts, they are only audio. So it's so intimate. Mm. And then people calling live can ask questions. Neat. And I love doing these calls with her. And I think people get a lot out of them. So that, for example, is something that I think will grow. I think we'll probably do a mentorship program I'd love to do with her, more structured and fewer students. And what I really see as the online work that I'm doing with her as a producer is work that's about teacher education, mm-hmm. yoga teacher education. So it's really not, you know, when I meet people in my life and they say, oh, I just, want to. And just yesterday I had a meeting with a tax person and she said, I want to do yoga. Like, can I do one of your online courses? And I, I said, you know, go to Yoga Glow. Yeah. Um, go study with, with Jason. I, for me, it's it, what I think is our niche is about yoga teacher education. And I think she, that really resonates with her as well in her age right now, because she said to me recently, you know, sometimes I just feel like I can't say right foot in, left foot out another time. Right. <laughs> so it's of like, course. I just, she's just a beginner, you know, she's done teaching beginners to some extent. And right. so I love the conversations that we're able to have. And I love also the natural thing that happens. You might know it from your grandparents or something as people age, sometimes they get a little, a little more spicy or willing to tell <laughs> as their days become fewer, they're, they're willing to be more honest. And I think we need that in yoga. And I love encouraging her to do that, to be, she has been so politically correct in some senses Hmm. throughout her career, just, you know, not speaking on purpose, not talking about other teachers, not talking about other systems, just teaching what she teaches, being really clean. And I think if she does think some things that people teach are dangerous, especially in terms of anatomy, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Fucking the tailbone, the constant obsession with backbending when you're forward bending and for, you know, it's like, then just talk about it now because 
I think you could save people a lot of lower back pain. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, that's huge. That's huge. I mean, I, yeah, I think people really appreciate that and need to, and like you're saying, I mean, she's been doing it for a long time. She, you know, she's seen the results of certain mistakes in anatomy. Yeah. And so she can kind of speak to that and has that experience. And the dynamic that we have, which is unique and, and, and I am so grateful for, I do, I do realize that it's special. I, the dynamic that I have, because she's my teacher, but she's also my mom. So I can have, I think I can push on her in a way that some students would feel, you know, too reticent to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that opens her up to a more frank conversation in all of the things that we do. I often say to her, you said this, I tried it. It didn't work. <laughs> like now what, you know, and I'll say that in a public forum. And I think that helps other students feel comfortable thus far in a lot of our digital things. I kind of play the Socratic. I play the part of asking the questions. I play dumb a little bit. Uh huh. And it's been a great learning for me figuring out how to ask questions, but I asked questions. Someone came up to me recently in London and she had this sweet Italian accent in her English and it wasn't perfect the way she said it, but she said, I, I very much like how you always ask the stupid questions, oh. just the ones I want to ask. <laughs> oh. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's very cute. I, I play the same role in our, in our relationship exactly. for sure. Yeah. It's good for them to have a foil too. Exactly. You know, I mean, I think, you know, I've talked to Jason in the past about, I mean, this is like slight, slight sidetrack, but related about how there are very few careers in which, you know, you don't have a direct manager telling you whether or not you did a good job. You know, yoga teachers for the most part get a lot of praise and I tease him yeah. about this. I'm like, you know, you need someone every once in a while to, like you said, to say that that didn't work for me. That might work for a different person's body and it might work for your body, yeah. but it didn't work for me. So let's, let's, do you have any other ideas? Because they just, <laughs> it's just so often that they get the good feedback. And then sometimes if someone didn't have a great experience, they're afraid to say something or afraid to ask, and then they don't come back, you know? And in a sense, maybe to bring it full circle for our topic today, I think that's what's really great about having kids when you're a teacher. And especially if you, because your ego can get, it's so easy to get this nice little ego hit when you sit in front of a room full of 20, 30, 40, 50 people and you, you know, and then you get your scented candle gifts at the end and your cards and your emails saying how great the workshop was. And then your kids can really help ground you. I mean, we definitely, I have two brothers. It wasn't just me. We were constantly teasing mom <laughs> and, you know, and, and I mean, just taking it lightheartedly. Sure. I remember once when we were, when we were, you know, I was maybe eight or something. Then the, my middle brother was 10 miles was 14. We were at a retreat in, I think in France one summer and there was a talent show at the end or non-talent talent show at the end of the week. And we would always put on skits, you know, and they had been obsessed with Ayurveda. I remember that week they were all talking a lot about Pitta Kapha and like what you're eating and what this is. And then we made this whole skit about this guru who said Pitta Kapha, Pitta Kapha. <laughs> you know, and like everyone was laughing and we were teasing them a little about, you know, so I think your kids have this great sense of not taking you seriously. Yeah. Totally. You know, in, in this guru mode and putting you on this pedestal. And so 
I, I imagine, I don't know, I can't speak for her, but I, I think that that might have been nice for mom to come home and just be mom. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. And like you said, it does. It totally does keep you grounded. I love that. The everyone bringing you cards and gifts at the end. That's the other thing I say to him. I'm like, there's no job in the world where no. you finish a big project. Like, yes, a teacher training is a huge project. But you finish the teacher training and it's as though people are like, you know, it's as though you're Miss America and everyone's like throwing the flowers at you. It's kind of, I don't know, from my perspective, it's just hilarious. Just Yeah, no, they, it's like they pay you and then at the end they thank you. (laughs) Oh man, what a racket. No, I mean, it's good. It's it's good, but it's, it's like you said, it's also good to have people who keep you grounded and keep it real. That's really funny. Well, oh my gosh, Lizzie, I had so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for talking all about your experiences and your mom and and your own growth. It's so nice to see you out there teaching. I'm really excited for you. Yeah, I feel so lucky. I mean, I just, it's a great job. It's such a good job. You get to do it in your pajamas. You get to write off your pedicures. (laughs) It's like, really? No, I mean, and the students, I love, I mean, I'm just, I have, yeah, I have, such a wonderful world of these restorative teachers and all of my mom's students have been so kind to me. And now to some extent, the studios that are inviting me to come teach. And it's just, it feels as though when I said I used to work as an architect, I felt as though I was swimming upstream. It was so mm-hmm. difficult every day, every, it was, you know, I had the number of coffees I had to drink to get through the day. I mean, just, mm-hmm. I felt like I was clawing my way. And then it was as if when I switched to doing yoga as my job, I just stopped swimming and began floating with the stream. And I have felt this, it's, it's a sense of gratitude for the universe has just really like opened to me and met me. And I feel so grateful to that, Mm -hmm. that I, that I'm being held by this yoga world and mom did all of the groundwork for that and all of the years and years. And now I'm just sort of receiving this wonderful energy of the yoga world. And I, I am deeply humbled and honored to be a part. That's so sweet. And also you have had the vision to, to bring her into the digital world, which I think is a great blessing for everyone and to have you teaching with her too. So that's, that's good for you. Yeah. All right. Okay. We'll keep in touch. Thanks so much for talking, Lizzie. Thanks so much for listening. You can find show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 65. And I'll put links to all the places that you can find and study with Lizzie. I highly recommend following her on Instagram. She's got a great feed and it's always fun to see people doing yoga around the world. Okay, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice.